May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. I'd like to talk to you today about signs of unbelief in God. Signs in unbelief. Signs of unbelief in the God of the Bible. And you might think of these as as symptoms of unbelief. You know, when you're sick and you go to the doctor, he or she may ask you about your symptoms, is going to ask you about your symptoms. How long have you had this cough? Do you have a fever? Where's the pain located? Symptoms point to the underlying condition that needs to be treated. I want to talk to you about some symptoms of unbelief that we see in our gospel readings. And and I point these out not as somebody who has been immune to this underlying condition, but really as a warning to all of us. Scripture is written to encourage us, to strengthen us, to challenge us, to warn us. These passages that we read today, I think, contain a warning for us. A warning about these signs of of unbelief, of a lack of faith in God. And we're called here to watch out for these things in our own life and to recognize them in the culture around us. So let's look at some of these symptoms of unbelief that we see in these passages. First of all, in our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel. This is the call of of Ezekiel to be a prophet of God in the 6th century B.C. And just some background on this time period. It was one of the darkest time periods in the history of the Old Testament. This was during a time that the nation of Babylon was on the rise, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, who had invaded Israel, who had invaded the northern kingdom of Judah. And then King Nebuchadnezzar deported many of the leading citizens of Jerusalem. They were in exile. And Ezekiel was part of that wave of refugees, those who had been deported out of Jerusalem. And he is there with his fellow refugees in the 6th century after their nation has been devastated by this. And God calls him in that context to speak his word. But Ezekiel had a message that people of Israel did not want to hear. And part of the message was the reason this has happened to our nation, the reason for the exile, and the reason for the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is that we have turned our back on God. We're not listening to the Word of God. We're no longer obeying the Word of God. One sign, one symptom of unbelief is to reject the Word of God. Listen how God characterizes Israel's attitude towards him and his word in this passage. He says, Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to the people of Israel, to the nation of rebels who've rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants, their descendants are also impotent or obstinate and stubborn. A nation of rebels obstinate and stubborn. And behind those words are some word pictures. These words, obstinate and stubborn. 
this idea, the images of a stiffness. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God will call the people of Israel a stiff-necked people. I think that comes from their agricultural background. They were used to dealing with oxen and mules and donkeys who are notoriously stubborn animals. And so they would have to take these sticks and goad these animals to get them to move. And I've not had to deal with mules or oxen or donkey, but I have a puppy at, ho- at home who sometimes is stiff-necked. And, and he doesn't obey our commands, and so we have to grab him by the collar. We're working on this, but we have to grab him by the collar to get him to go sometimes where we want him to go. Go outside the house. And we have to drag him, and he gets really stiff-necked. And it's frustrating. But the Lord is saying, this is what I'm dealing with when it comes to the people of Israel. This is their response to my word. They will not move. They will not turn when my word comes to them. And so he says, Ezekiel, don't be surprised if they don't heed your word. He's called him to preach, but he says it's not going to be easy. So don't be afraid of them or their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and though you will sit on scorpions. What a picture. (laughs) What an encouragement for ministry. Right there at the beginning. How's that for an ordination sermon? (laughs) It's going to be like going through briars and thorns and sitting on scorpions. But God says, I've given you a message. I've given you my word. And don't worry how they respond. Your call is to be faithful to the word that I've given you. To keep proclaiming this word. I'm with you, Ezekiel. My spirit is in you. Your call is to be faithful and to preach the word. Don't worry about the response. And watch out for your own heart. Don't become unbelieving like them. How is it that the nation of Israel began to turn from the word of God like this? How is it that we might turn from the word of God? Well, a big problem was that instead of listening to God's word, During this time, the people of Israel were beginning to listen to the surrounding culture. And then, rather than obeying God's clear teaching that you shall have no other gods but me, you shall not make any graven images, you shall not make idols, rather than obey that clear word and that clear command, they began doing the opposite, worshiping the gods of their neighbors and setting up idols. God even shows Ezekiel this vision in chapter 8 of the idolatry that's taking place in the temple that was set apart for the worship of God. God shows Ezekiel that there were women there worshiping a Mesopotamian God of vegetation and fertility, weeping for this God in the temple. And 25 men in the temple precincts were venerating the sun. And so they had begun adopting the ideology and the idolatry of their neighbors instead of trusting in God's word and being faithful to him. And I'm sure what happened over time was it didn't happen all at once, but over time they began to make compromises. And they began to say, well, our neighbors are worshiping these idols and they believe these things. And, 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 and maybe they saw that at times their neighbors were successful and Nothing 
befell them, and so they thought, well, this looks kind of harmless, and we'll fit in a little bit more, and we can sort of integrate this into our worship expression as well. They began to syncretize. They began to compromise until it got to the point that they're doing this in the temple of the Lord. And the Lord said to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel, the glory of God is going to depart from the temple. The temple will be destroyed. But at the core of this was a rejection of the word of God, a compromise towards God's word. And so this passage from Ezekiel, I see both a challenge for us today and an encouragement. It's a challenge, of course, because it forces all of us to ask this question, what word am I living by? What ideas are, thinking, are shaping my thinking and my life, the life of my family? Is it the Word of God which is unchanging? The Word of God is an unchanging standard, or is it the wisdom of the age which fluctuates and changes like shifting sand? What is the foundation of our life, our church, our family? Is it the Word of God? Am I embracing the idols of my neighbors? Or am I trusting in the God who has saved me? Are there places in my life where I am stiff-necked towards God's clear teaching, where I'm resisting? He's pulling, and I'm resisting. I've become stiff-necked. Have I grown complacent to the Word of God, no longer seeking to know God's will and God's heart through His Word, through the study of His Word, the meditation on His Word? These are important questions that This passage challenges us to ask ourselves. But also, I think this is an encouraging passage because God tells Ezekiel, I've given you this mission and I want you to know up front, this is not going to be easy. You're going to a house of rebels. The implication is they're not going to listen. And friends, as we seek to be faithful to God's word and to raise our families according to God's word and to base our ministry and our life on God's word, it's not going to be easy for us either. And we might get depressed, and we might feel defeated, and we might feel tempted to cave under the pressure. But Ezekiel's call reminds us that we're not the first people to experience this. This is often how it is for those who will stand up and be bold for the Word of God. Ezekiel had to go through the briars and the thorns, sit on scorpions. But God was with him, and God empowered him. And God said, be faithful to the message, no matter what. So, a sign of unbelief is rejecting the word of God, but as God's people, we're called to be faithful. Faithful to his word. And then in our gospel passage, this intriguing passage from the gospel, we see another sign of unbelief. And that is to reject God's Son, who is the word incarnate, the word made flesh. I think specifically we see here that Jesus' own people, his townspeople, are rejecting his uniqueness. They're trying to cut Jesus down to size. So, in Mark 6, Jesus is returning to his hometown. His reputation precedes him. He is growing in popularity. He's performed mighty miracles of healing. Just before this, he raised a little girl from the dead. And he's known as a teacher of incredible power and spiritual wisdom. And so he returns to 
his hometown. The hometown boy returns to his hometown and he goes to the synagogue, which is where you would go if you wanted to speak to your community in those days. But did his own people open their hearts and minds to Jesus, the hometown boy? Did they really begin to wonder, is this God's Messiah? Could this be our Savior? Could this be the Savior of the world? No, it says that they took offense at him. They took offense at him. One, one commentator noted that they were asking the right questions. How is this happening? How does he have this wisdom? How does he have this power? Where is this coming from? That's the right question to ask us about Jesus as you read the Gospels and you think about Jesus' life. How does he have this power? How does he have this wisdom? What he did, did and does points to his identity as the very Son of God. So they were asking the right questions. But as this commentator said, they had the wrong attitude as they asked these questions. They had the wrong attitude because they wanted to cut him down to size. Isn't he just the carpenter, they said? We know Jesus. He's Mary's son. We know his brothers and his sisters. He's just like us. I think the idea here is, you know what, let's not get carried away here with Jesus. Let's not get carried away with the idea that he is utterly unique, that he is part of God's, God's plan of salvation. Let's not get carried away. We know who he is. And it says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. The evidence was before them. There were reasons to believe. But many people rejected. And they tried to cut Jesus down to size. And today there's ways that people do that in our culture. To cut Jesus down to size. To relativize him. For example, he's just one religious teacher among other religious teachers, some people will say. Ignoring his own teaching about him being the Messiah and the Son of God. And some people will say today, you know, he's, Jesus is an example that we can follow. But this business that he is our Savior, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, and that he is a claim over everyone's life, no, that's, that's going too far. He's an example to follow, but he's not the Savior of the world. Some people will say, well, during this time, there are other messianic figures that came on the scene, and Jesus is just one of them. Some people will say, and this gaining kind of currency, or I don't know about now, but a few years ago, there were videos even on YouTube, which is very influential among young people, saying, you know what, this idea of Jesus being the Son of God, that's something that came later. That's something that came uh, as, a re- as a result of the early church's reflection on Jesus, and they were beginning to to meld in Greek and Roman ideas about gods and goddesses. And there were these semi-divine figures, uh, human and divine figures like Dionysus and Hercules in the Greco-Roman period. And, And so that's what they did with Jesus. They turned him into something like that. The problem with that theory, by the way, is that, of course, Jesus' earliest followers were all Jews. They were not influenced by the Greco-Roman mythology of the time period. They were monotheist. They had been brought up to believe that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And that makes it all the more remarkable when we see these same 
Jewish early followers of Jesus beginning to claim that Jesus is the Lord. You know, Thomas said when he encountered the risen Christ, my Lord and my God. Thomas was raised, of course, as a, a Jewish monotheist. But these earliest followers of Jesus, they were not influenced by Greco-Roman mythology at all. They were influenced by what they saw happening in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that pulled them into a place of faith and trust in Him. But we have all these theories out there that deny the uniqueness of Jesus that try to cut Him down to say that, you know what, He's, he's just one of us, or maybe He's a, a particularly inspired human being, one of the great ones, but He's nothing more than a human being, nothing more than another religious figure. And so we can dismiss Jesus and put him aside. And we can dismiss his claim on our life. But the scriptures teach us that to reject Jesus' uniqueness, to reject him, is to reject the God who sent him. To deny that he is the Son of God is to deny God who sent him. It's a great sign of unbelief. It's very current in our culture today. So, what's the cure for this unbelief? We've talked about some of the symptoms, rejecting the Word of God, resisting the Word of God, rejecting Jesus and His uniqueness, sticking with the medical analogy. What's the cure for this kind of unbelief? Some people might say, more evidence. I want more evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. I want more evidence to trust in the Word of God. And, and that has its place. That's important to give reasons to believe why we believe what we believe. We don't check our brains at the church door. There are good reasons to believe. But something else needs to happen beyond evidence. The people in Jesus' day, his own townspeople, they had evidence right there in front of their eyes. No, what needs to happen is a change of heart. People need a new heart, and only God can do that. And that's why it's so wonderful in the book of Ezekiel, as this book unfolds, it's not all gloom and doom. Ezekiel prophesies at the end of this book, in chapter 36, that God is going to give His people a new heart and a new spirit. They're not going to be stiff-necked anymore. Their heart is going to be soft and open to obey the Word of God. Here's what God promises Ezekiel, a day is coming in Israel when I will give you a new heart. I will give you new and right desires and put a new spirit within you. I will take your stony heart of sin and give you new hearts of flesh. I will put my spirit within you so that you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. Why? Because of this new heart. Heart represents our desires, our affection, our will, and our love. And God says, I'm going to do a transforming work in the hearts of my people so that they will begin to love what I love. And I, they will do my word, not because it's a sense of duty, but out of delight for the God who loves them, has saved them, has transformed them. Brothers and sisters, if we have come to believe in God's word and in his son, Jesus Christ, it's because God has given us a new heart. And today we can thank and praise Him for that work that He's done in our life. It's not because we are better. 
It's not because we are smarter, not even a teeny tiny more smarter than those who reject or struggle with belief. No, it's because of the work of the Spirit in our life. Apart from this, uh, we would not believe and we wouldn't desire to do what God is calling us to do. And so we don't look upon those who, who don't believe or those who struggle with belief. We don't ever want to look upon people who struggle with belief from a place of superiority, but from compassion. And we pray that God would do in their hearts what He's done in our hearts. If we're going to boast about anything, as Paul says, we're going to boast about our weakness so that God's grace would be glorified. We don't come from this place of superiority, but we magnify the grace of God because of what He's done in our life. And we also need to recognize that these symptoms of unbelief, and to switch the metaphor a little bit, they're, they're like currents that are flowing through our culture. These currents of unbelief can pull us in. And so we have to guard our hearts. Our hearts, as the hymn says, our hearts are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so we come to the Lord even today and say, here is my heart again. Here's my heart again. Take and seal it for thy courts above. That's why we gather each week. That's why this is so important to hear the word of God, to pray together as his people, and to gather around the table of the Lord. Through that, as we meditate and reflect on what God has said to us and what God has done for us at the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ, our hearts are softened. Our spirit is renewed by His Spirit. And God is at work in us that we might continue to trust and believe in Him. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We do thank you, O God, for that work in our hearts and minds, the work of your Spirit, as we reflect on all that you have done in our lives and in your Son, Jesus Christ, for our sake. We pray, God, that if there are places in our life where we resist your clear teaching, that we would repent and that you would soften our hearts in those places. We bring before you even now those in our life, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, who do not believe in you, Lord Jesus. We bring before you those who struggle with unbelief. And we pray, O God, from a place of compassion that your Holy Spirit will draw them to your Son, Jesus. We pray, God, for the ministry of this church that we will not compromise your word, but we will speak it boldly and compassionately to this culture that often rebels. We pray, God, for a revival, revitalization of the clear preaching of your word under the anointing of your spirit for the renewal of your church and the salvation of many people in this country. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.